So the reading, as Steve said, is from Esther, chapter 2. We're starting from verse 19, reading through to the end of chapter 3. And that's on page 502 of the Church Bible. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the Lot, was cast in the presence of Haman, to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. 
They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatchers were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. you very much. Do uh, keep that open if you've got a Bible near you and uh, we're actually going to go all the way through to the end of chapter 4 with it but that's quite a long bit to read so we'll, uh, we'll cover that bit when we get to it. Uh, let me pray for us as we get stuck in. Heavenly Father we want to thank you for your goodness, we want to thank you for your love, we want to thank you that you're a God who speaks to us and so we pray now you would give us ears to hear as we look at the details of this story as we try to understand what you're teaching us. We pray that you would help us to be ready to listen and ready to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry. I think it's gang off the glay if you're going to read it in Scottish. But anyway, there's that thing about basically the best plans. You can have the best plans. Doesn't mean it's going to work, does it? Everybody's got a plan. Everybody's got a plan. The question is, whose plan is going to succeed? That's the tension, isn't it? In every sports match, in every business deal, in every family holiday, uh, in every election season. Everybody's got a plan. But whose plan is actually going to succeed? Well, the book of Esther is full of plots and plans. And we're going to see three of those today. Some of them are plans to kill. Some of those are plans to save. And as we look at all these sort of weaving schemes and strategies, we're going to see, hopefully, that nothing is random. Somebody's plan is going exactly to plan. And let's remind ourselves of the story so far, if you weren't here last week or if last week seems a long time ago. Uh, the book of Esther is set uh, in the heart of the Persian Empire, far away from the promised land and, and through a series of unfortunate events a Jewish orphan called Esther had been captured and made queen. So for some reason one of God's people had been plonked right there in the palace. Esther had been brought up by her older cousin Mordecai and it's Mordecai whose story we pick up to start off with. So that's going to give you a bit of the bearings that's who we're dealing with. We start off looking at Mordecai and the first of our plots. Plot number one, the assassination of the king. 
the assassination of the king. So since we last met the characters, Mordecai has got a job, or at least we're told about it. At the end of verse 19, chapter 2, might sound like he's a beggar, doesn't it? He's there sitting at the king's gate. That's actually a job. Uh, We're not talking about sort of sitting at a little garden gate or even some sort of ornate uh, metal kind of gates. Uh, This is a a reconstruction of the king's palace from all the archaeology and stuff. And this is the king's gate. So it's actually a building. We're talking something 131 foot high, 92 feet wide. It's sort of an enclosed archway. There's rooms either side, marble pillars in the middle, an enormous statue of Xerxes' father out the front. The king's gate, that is where deals are made, politics, business, all the movers and shakers are there. So when it says he's sitting at the king's gate, that means he's got a position in the courts. In fact, uh, in, I thought it was interesting anyway, receipts have been found, not paper receipts, obviously, um, stone sort of tablet type receipts. Receipts have been found referring to a finance official called Marduka, which is the Persian equivalent of Mordecai, in just the right place at exactly the right time for the book of Esther. So uh, in all likelihood, Mordecai is sort of an accountant in the treasury. That's the sort of role he's got. I mean, that's where he works. He's right in there amongst things, and he overhears whispers in the corridors of power. He overhears a plot to kill the king. So have a look at verse 21. There's a couple of, couple of guards there, and they are very cross with Xerxes. We don't know why. Uh, maybe they didn't like the fact that they'd been made eunuchs. That seemed to happen to pretty much everybody in the palace at that time. That might have been why they were angry. might have been something else. Either way, they want the king dead, so they plan to assassinate him. And Mordecai hears about it. He hears about this sort of gunman on the grassy knoll or whatever it is. And so he warns Esther, in verse 22. She warns the king. They look into it, find out it's true, and they execute the traitors. It's nice, sort of, says, impales them on a pole. That's lovely, isn't it? Now, history tells us Xerxes was eventually murdered in his bedroom by his chief bodyguard. So he sort of had reason to worry about this kind of thing. Uh, but not today. This time, he survives. All thanks to Mordecai's tip-off. So we're told, verse 23, the whole investigation is sort of written up, officially recorded, and then... Nothing. Mordecai is not thanked. Mordecai is not rewarded. Nothing seems to come of it. And the story just moves on. You get these, just these few verses telling you about this assassination attempt that fails. And then anyway, moving on, nothing else to see here. So why are we being told about this? And why have I made a big point of it? Well, one reason I've made a point of it is because I suppose my job is to just tell you what it says. So that's part of what I'm doing but also because this is going to become important next week. This little story, it doesn't seem like it at the time, but it is going to be very significant. And I wonder how much of our lives are a bit like that, where we're just getting on with stuff, trying to do the right thing, perhaps feeling a bit overlooked, forgotten, a bit disappointed that nothing much is happening. Oh, I thought that might come to... No, no, no reward, no anything. No, okay. And it's only later on that we see when the really significant moments were. Uh, the old classic thing of how in, in English we, we read from, uh, from left to right, but in Hebrew you read right to left. And uh, the Puritan minister John Flavel said, 
Sometimes God's providence is like Hebrew writing. It must be read backwards. We try and we've got to live it forwards, but you can't really understand it until you look back on it. You say, well, nothing's happening in my life. My big plans have fallen through. What is God doing? What is happening? Well, maybe sometime in the future, it's when we look back, this will prove to be a very significant season. Now, in the meantime, Mordecai just had to sort of sit tight. He had to do life forwards like we always have to do. Uh, And so he just plods on day after day until another plot Uh, is hatched. Plot number two, the annihilation of the Jews. The annihilation of the Jews. Now this is the central plot in the book of Esther, the plot to kill all of the Jewish people. We've been introduced already to Mordecai, who's the sort of life-saving hero, and now it's time to meet the villain. If I'd asked you uh, earlier on to name uh, someone with a, a name beginning with H, who hates the Jews and tried to exterminate them, you probably would have said Hitler. You're allowed to say Hitler. You probably would have said Hitler. Maybe, maybe there's other people, I don't know. But long before him was another tyrant with the same aim, and his name was Haman, or to give him his full title in here, Haman, enemy of the Jews. Now, Haman is sort of a full-on pantomime baddie. We are supposed to boo and hiss every time he struts onto the stage. And in fact, in retellings of the story, the way that uh, the, the, the story of Esther is often celebrated during Purim is it gets read out in such a way that it is a bit like a pantomime. And whenever his name comes out, people take off their shoes and bang, 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 because we don't want to hear his name. Boo, hiss. He is a baddie. And chapter 3 begins with Haman being made second in command under King Xerxes. It's all quite unfair, isn't it? Mordecai's just saved the king's life. and gets no reward. But this Haman gets elevated. He gets given a seat of honor. He gets raised up so high that the king says everybody has to bow down when he walks in. This sign of deep respect for him. But... Chapter 3, verse 2, Mordecai won't do it. Mordecai refuses to kneel down or show him honor. Now, if you remember last week, this is like Vashti all over again. There's a command to do it and somebody will not do it. Well, why not? What's going on here? Why not? What is Mordecai's problem? Is he making a religious point? Kind of, I only bow before God. Well, No, because this isn't about worshipping Haman, it's just being respectful. And we're supposed to be respectful and show honour to people in authority. Is he just too proud? Kind of, oh, you won't catch me bowing to anybody. Again, it can't be that. You wouldn't get very far in the king's gate without a lot of bowing. So why won't Mordecai do it? I think it's because of a long-standing grudge. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 5, When Mordecai was first introduced, he was introduced as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. And the only other character who's identified in that same kind of way by their tribe is Haman. In chapter 3, verse 1, calls him Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And there's something in their family history that sets these two 
at loggerheads. So back in Exodus 17, the first people ever to attack the Jews were the Amalekites. They've just been rescued out of Egypt. They're on their way out and they get attacked by the Amalekites. And God says to them, don't forget this. From generation to generation, there will be conflict until they are defeated. But the Israelites did forget. They kept making friends with them. They kept uh, making deals with them. And it's a feud that keeps bubbling up time and time again. Uh, it, 1 Samuel 15, which we're actually going to look at uh, soon in an evening service. 1 Samuel 15, Israel's first king, Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, son of a man named Kish, fought against the Amalekite king, a chap called Agag. And this is the point where God says to him, right, let's end this. Let's finally end the war against the Amalekites. And Saul says, no. He ignores God and lets Agag live. And that's actually the final straw that makes God sort of wash his hands and say, right, that's the end of Saul's reign. So here we have, centuries later now, Israel's ancient enemy is back. We've got Mordecai versus Haman, an Israelite versus an Amalekite, a, a Benjaminite versus an Agagite. This is serious grudge match round 25. And Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to bow down before the enemy of my people. Now, unsurprisingly, people notice. They, they mention it every day. They're saying, Mordecai, I don't understand. Why don't you ever salute? Why don't you ever say, good morning, sir, when Haman comes in? Why, why, everybody else is bowing down. Why won't you just do it? And they pester him day after day until eventually he says, well, it's, it's actually because I'm a Jew, which is something he'd been keeping under wraps. And so they report it. They go and report it. We don't know quite why, but it's sort of, I just wanted to clarify our, our equality and diversity policy. You know, this person over in accounts, Mordecai, says he shouldn't have to kneel to you because he's Jewish. Is that okay? Or, you know, do I need to speak to HR or something about this? And Haman says in no uncertain terms, that is not okay. That is absolutely not okay. Now, some people um, being given power can sort of bring out the best in them and they rise to it and great. Haman is not one of those people. He is one of those people where power goes immediately to his head. And at the end of verse 5, it says, He was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny. This is a, a flaring up again of this old grudge. This sort of bit of office politics actually turns into ethnic cleansing. And that's plot number two, the annihilation of the Jews. But, but Haman is very powerful, but he can't do something quite like that without approval. So he goes to the king and he is very persuasive. Have a look from verse 8. He says, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So he's saying to the king, look, these people are everywhere. They have infiltrated every nook and cranny like rats. 
These people are deliberately awkward. They make no effort to integrate. They are a law unto themselves. They rebel against the king, and you can't let them get away with it. Now, if that's true, if there really is this sort of network of people across conspiring against, well, that's a rebellion waiting to happen. You can see the king would go, right, yeah, no, absolutely, we need to deal with it. But it's not true. It's just anti-Semitism, isn't it? This is textbook anti-Semitism. And then Haman sweetens the deal in case Xerxes isn't convinced. He says in verse 9, he promises 10,000 talents of silver if the king says yes. That is 340 tons. It's about two-thirds of the annual Persian tax revenue, apparently. We do have a lot of records from the time, amazingly. And that's an offer Xerxes can't refuse. So he says in the thing, oh, keep the money, but it looks like later he actually does accept it. I don't know if he's just going, oh, don't worry about it. Um, but anyway, he gives Haman his signet ring, which is basically like giving him a blank check to do what he wants. Here's my email password. Here's the, the codes for the nuclear weapons. You just you go destroy them all. Do what you want. He doesn't even know which people they're talking about. You know, it's like he doesn't ask. Haman doesn't tell him. He just goes, oh, right, yep, fine, rubber stamp that. And this pot, plot is authorized to annihilate all of the Jews. And before it's even been agreed, Haman's already decided the date. So if you look in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, it shows him casting lots or poor to decide when the killing should start. And, and archaeologists have dug up poor from this time. They're sort of like a little dice that you would roll. Or you'd pull them out of a jar like a sort of raffle ticket. It's a deliberately random decision maker, like a game or like a sort of ancient magic eight ball, that kind of thing. You make a decision at random. Imagine for a minute, we've got a, a Jewish calendar here. Uh, there's the, the English months around the edge, the Jewish months in the middle. It's almost like it gets the calendar and then sort of goes, let's spin the wheel. Let's see when it's going to be. It's deliberately quite a morbid sort of random game kind of thing to go, oh, right, well, the Holocaust is set for the month of Adar, 11 months' time. Now, it was, uh, it, was, it was the month of Nisan at that time, so that's 11 months' time. And you think, well, you know when your birthday is. I don't know if you've ever wondered when your death day is going to be, when the, the other day on your gravestone. Suddenly, the Jews all across the Persian Empire, which is the majority of the world at that point, they don't need to guess anymore. They know exactly when they're going to die. It's going to be on the 13th day of the 12th month. Verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Can you imagine reading a notice like that? It gets sent out. Can you imagine that? And then to rub salt in the wounds, look at when the decree comes out. So in verse 12, it says it was the 13th day of the first month. Now that might not mean very much to us, but that would be like to them like saying it went out on the 24th of December or Christmas Eve. Because the 13th day of the first month is the day before Passover. So all these people across the empire, their only plans at the minute 
uh, sort of what are we doing with dinner tomorrow, what time is grandpa arriving, those sorts of nice plans. And now, instead of celebrating their rescue from Egypt, history is repeating itself. There's another superpower trying to wipe them out. And they're given this date that is going to set all kinds of questions running through our minds. Is it over? Or, or is God going to rescue us again like he did in the Passover? Are God's plans going to fail? Is he going to save us? Not just us, is he going to save everybody? Because if you remember, God had promised to send a rescuer from the Jewish people to save the entire world. And now all the Jews are going to be annihilated. This is going to wipe out Jesus' family line before he's even had a chance to come into the world. If Haman's plan succeeds, all of God's plans fail. So there's a sense in which the stakes could not be higher. And yet it's just signed off incredibly callously. Verse 15 is so cold, isn't it? It says the edict goes out and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So there they are, these sort of clink glasses, good bit of business done. And everybody else out there is thrown into confusion. They don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. The Persian Empire was huge. There were loads of different peoples, loads of different customs and languages and laws. But there's only one of them worth confronting, though, apparently. Uh, And the only law they'd broken was that one man was slightly rude to Haman. The one man who'd incidentally just saved the king's life. What a, what a national security threat he is. Surely the, the logical response to that is all of his people across the empire must die. It's completely irrational and it's totally unjust. It always is. Hostility to God's people makes no sense. We were uh, praying just uh, last week at the prayer meeting for Nigeria. We were praying there about these horrible attacks that have happened there over the Christmas period. Eight churches burnt down, 200 Christians murdered, 5,000 Christians displaced, their homes plundered, while their non-Christian neighbors left untouched. Why? It's completely evil and irrational. In the 20th century, around 300,000 Christians were martyred every year around the world. Why? There is a lot of hatred for God's people. We have a great spiritual enemy. Behind Haman's plot, behind Pharaoh's oppression in Egypt all those centuries before, behind King Herod five centuries later who was going to kill all the babies, just to try and get rid of the Messiah. Anything to try and destroy God's plan to save the world through Jesus. As I said, the stakes could not be higher. Now the first plot failed, didn't it? The first plot we looked at today failed. The second plot has been authorized, but is it going to succeed? I suppose that depends on the third plot of the day. Plot three the intercession of the queen. The intercession of the queen. Unlike the first two, this plan is a rescue plan. It's a plan for Esther to intercede, that is to speak up on everybody's behalf. Can Esther save the day? 
And this is what happens in chapter 4, which, as I said, we didn't read earlier for time reasons, but we'll, we'll whip through now. See, in verse 1, we get Mordecai's reaction to Haman's plan. It says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. And we're told in verse 3 that a similar scene is repeated everywhere across the empire, wherever uh, the Jews discover their fate. There's this sort of tidal wave of grief as the news spreads. And the only person who seems to have not heard about this is Esther. She's sort of secure in the palace, not getting to hear any of this kind of stuff. She's told in verse 4 and 5 that Mordecai is out there making a scene. She tries to cheer him up. He will not be comforted. So then she sends servants to go, right, go find out what's wrong with him. And the rest of chapter 4 is sort of a record of all the messages that are passed back and forth. Uh, it's a bit like kind of scrolling back through their text, if you see what I'm like. See what I mean. It's sort of, he said that, and then she sent a message that said that, and then he sent a message that says that. So let, let's read verse 7 to 8. Mordecai told him, that's the servant, everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. You see what he's doing? He's getting her up to speed with it. He's giving her all the proof that they need. And then he lays out his plan as well that Esther needs to go into, go into the king and plead for her people. She needs to intercede. She needs to beg him to call it off. So we had this first assassination, a plot that Mordecai had a plan and managed to scupper that. Has his new plan got the power to scupper this horrible plan? Well, Esther is not convinced that it's going to work. Let's, let's hear her message back to him from verse 11. She says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She's saying, are you serious, Mordecai? That's your plan. Go and talk to the king. Everybody knows you can't just stroll in and go and talk to the king. Everybody knows that. He was surrounded by uh, executioners with axes. They'd be on all the doorways and, and down the hallway there with their massive axe. If you walk in without an invitation, you are killed on the spot. The only way you avoid it is if the king happens in time to sort of go, oh no, wait, 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 wait. And, and he doesn't do that. She says, Look, I'm not exactly flavor of the month. She says, I haven't, been, I haven't seen him for over 30 days. They've been married for five years by this point. The honeymoon appears to be over. And she's saying, look, you don't want me to jeopardize my safety like that. I can't just barge in like that. It's a massive gamble. And it's a, and it's a sudden change of tune as well. So back in chapter 2, verse 5, no, sorry, verse 10 and verse 20, Mordecai forbids Esther from telling anybody that she's Jewish. And now he says, go and plead for your people. Go and tell the king, right when the Jews are most in danger. 
It's a suicide mission. And so Esther says, sorry, no. But Mordecai won't take no for an answer. So see verse 13. He replies, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And what do you make of what he says there? I think it's fascinating. He's saying, look, don't think you're safe from this genocide just because you're tucked away in the palace. That sounds like a bit of a threat to out her as a Jew. And this whole conversation that's been done with messages passed in and out, sort of like passing notes at the back of cars, and things that he's already said, that would be enough to, to blow her cover already, wasn't it? But then he takes it a little bit further. He says, even if the rest of the Jews survive, you won't. Again, is that a threat? He's not saying, look, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. He's saying, no, do be afraid. Be very afraid. It is not as safe. You are not as safe as you think you are. We saw this last week, didn't we? There are no straightforward heroes in the book of Esther. Everybody's a little bit of a mixed bag. But there are signs of of growth in Mordecai, growing faith in God. Just imagine you are him for a moment and think, how would you finish the following sentence? You're pleading with Esther and you say, look, if you keep silent at this time, what? If you keep silent at this time, we're all doomed. That's probably what I would say. But he doesn't say that. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the, for the Jews will arise from another place. Now, how is that for confidence in God? To say, look, this is one way it might happen. But if it's not that way, God will save us another way. Nearly 1,000 years before this to the day, God rescued us out of Egypt. He promised to be our God. The Amalekites attacked us. God promised to blot them out. Centuries later, God promises to send a saviour to fix the world forever. And if Haman's plan succeeds, God's plans fail. And that doesn't happen. God's plans never fail. His promises have no best before dates. He never forgets what he said he was going to do. God will save us. And it might be through you, Esther. It might be from another place. But God will keep his promises. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe everything that's happened has happened for a reason to bring you into the palace for such a time as this. Maybe God has been moving all the pieces around on the board in such a way that it looks like he's setting himself up to lose, but he's getting everything exactly where he wants it to win. Could you say that? If you were in Mordecai's shoes, your adopted daughter, taken away, trafficked into the palace, that maybe God has a plan. That maybe there's a fourth plot over and above and under and in and through all these other plots. God's plot to keep his promises, to rescue his people. Can we say that? That maybe God has been doing things for such a time as this. That whatever has happened to us in the past... Perhaps God had a plan. 
to bring you to this point or to bring you to some other point. And we might not be able to see all the stepping stones in this, this side of heaven and say, oh, now I get it. But God is at work. Even in the book of Esther, the one book of the Bible where God is not mentioned, where it gets so dark he seems to have vanished, he is there. In such a time as this, we can trust him when we can't see him. Now looking back, we can look back on the story and sort of slight spoilers, they were right to trust him. But at the time, they had no guarantees. Karen, Karen Jobes puts it like this. Esther was just like us. She couldn't see the happy ending of the story from the frightening middle. And that's us, isn't it? She had no clarity. She had no absolute assurance that it was going to work out okay. In a sense, she had to sort of stop looking for God's will and just do what you need to do. Just do the thing in front of you now. Stop hiding it's time to stand up and be counted. And so in verse 16, she writes her reply. She says, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Isn't that great? Isn't that so dramatic, isn't it, when she says, if I, if I perish, or so be it, I perish. This is the defining moment of Esther's life. When she decides, I am one of God's people. I'm not going to keep that a secret anymore. Whatever the cost, I'm going to do what is right. The queen will intercede. She will put her life on the line for her people. And persecution at hard times tend to do that, doesn't it? It sort of brings believers out of the woodwork. We, we can be little chameleon Christians just blending in with our surroundings. And then hard times come and we realize, actually, no, I need to be known as his. And that should be our prayer as well, shouldn't it? Like in Acts chapter 4, they're told to shut up, stop talking about Jesus. And so they don't say, okay, sorry, we'll stop talking now. Or, or Lord, please keep us safe. Their prayer instead is, Lord, enable us to keep speaking with boldness. That should be our response to say, right, let's keep speaking. Let's get together and pray. The other kind of intercession. She calls a fast. She says, cancel Passover. We are not eating until this is over. Let's pray for three days. Intercede for me before I go and intercede for you. And then, we're left with a cliffhanger. We're just left with it going, oh, what's going to happen? Find out next week. That's the, the next bit of the story. But in the meantime, as we sort of finish, as we, we're sort of in limbo. We're like Esther. We don't know, is she going to survive? It's good for us to think, well, where do we fit into this story? Perhaps as we've gone through, you can associate with Mordecai, sort of trying to do the right thing. Maybe feeling overlooked, not seeing how your life fits in with the bigger picture. Maybe you associate with Esther and realizing, actually, it's time for me to stand up as a Christian. Stop blending in. The stories like this, they hit us in all kinds of ways. But I wonder, really, if we were going to be cast in this play, 
we wouldn't be the king saving Mordecai. We wouldn't be beautiful Queen Esther. Hopefully we wouldn't be Haman. We would probably be, if we're honest, some random person <coughs> out in the vast empire who's just heard the news that we're going to die. And all of our hopes now rest on another one of God's people interceding for us. Because that is our situation. Esther's bravery, it doesn't just secure the family tree of the promised Messiah. It tells us a little bit, gives us a glimpse of what that Messiah would do. Of rescuing us at great personal cost by pleading for mercy on our behalf. Tim Keller summed it up very, very well. He said, Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but says, when I perish, I will perish for them to save my people. In a sense, Jesus stepped up to save us from destruction. So we can know whether the days are very, very dark like they were then, like they can be now. Jesus intercedes for us. That should give us enormous courage to trust him, to take risks like Esther, to be bolder, to be more confident in God, because we have got a man on the inside and he's on our side. Everybody has a plan, but it is God's plan that will not fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that the people in the midst of these events, when they were happening, were able even to question, to say, who knows? Maybe God's got a plan here. Maybe this has all been brought together on purpose for good reason. So I pray, Father God, that you would help us to trust in the middle of whatever it is we're going through or whatever we have faced or will face. We pray that you would help us to likewise be able to see your hand at work in our lives so that we can trust you as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.